All right. Um, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the episode 24 of Global AI, the podcast. Today, we have got David Smith from Microsoft to discuss about one of the hottest topics in the market, and that's around Azure Open AI service. Um, before we get into that, a little bit of intro of myself. So I'm Arafat Tehseen. I am joining you with my co-host Somi from Sydney, Australia. We both are Microsoft MVPs for artificial intelligence, and we have got an awesome guest, David. So before we get into anything, anybody else, we'll directly go to David. And David, would you like to give us a little bit of intro about yourself? And then I've got a question right ready for you. All right. Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks, Arafat and Sami. It's uh, really great to be here. Um, my name, as you said, is David Smith. Um, I work in the cloud advocacy team at Microsoft, where I've been for about seven years. Um, I lead a team of specialists in artificial intelligence and machine learning um, that try and educate the world about how Microsoft can help folks uh, in that area. Um, I'm based in the USA, um, near the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, but I originally grew up in Australia, so I'm very excited to be connected with you folks in Sydney today. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that accent gives us that Aussie sound as well. So <laughs> <laughs> this is really nice. Um, so very basic question, and this has come to come to me and, and I'm sure to others as well a lot of times that when there is an open AI service already, what's the what's the need of Azure Open AI service and how it is different? Uh, to those which OpenAI offers. Sure, yeah. Well, let's start with ChatGPT, shall we? Because like most people have heard of ChatGPT, yeah. you're probably familiar with it. Um, it's a consumer service that OpenAI, the company, provides. Now, OpenAI is a completely independent company that has produced these large language models. And with ChatGPT, you know, as a user, you can log into the service, you can type, ask questions, get responses, use it interactively. So I refer to that as a consumer service. Now, by contrast, the Azure OpenAI service provides all of the same large language models that are available from ChatGPT and other services uh, from OpenAI. But it's there as a service for developers to integrate these um, chat systems, these uh, text prompting systems, these large language models in general into other applications through an API. Now, OpenAI, the company, they provide APIs as well. Uh, but in the case of Azure OpenAI, these models are number one hosted within the Azure environment. And most importantly, what that means is when you use the APIs for these models through Azure, you're doing it subject to all the protections and service level agreements that Azure provides. So your data isn't going to OpenAI, the company, it's staying within your Azure tenant. And in mm. fact, Microsoft cannot even see the data that you provide uh, to those mm. services. It's protected by all the standard Azure data protections. Makes sense. So it's like a security layer on top of that as well. Exactly. Um, and it's not just the security, it's the privacy, it's the mm -hmm. compliances and all the other benefits you get from hosting applications within Azure. Yeah. Cool, cool. That's very interesting. I want to get into a bit more details. But before that, there's another 
name going around, which is prompt engineering, which is very much related to AI and ML. Mm -hmm. So I just want to see if it's maybe the question is, is it going to be a profession or is I haven't seen a job posting about prompt engineering, but I'm hearing the name a lot. Mm -hmm. And if I want to be a prompt engineer, what should I start learning? Well, yeah. that, that's a really good question. Yeah, I haven't seen job descriptions like that or heard about them. I just haven't seen them myself, but I think it's likely to be a thing. But for the benefits of those that might not be aware of what a prompt is, first of all, let's explain a little bit about how these models like ChatGPT works. Um, it's actually pretty simple at the end of the day. It's a black box, which takes an input, which is a bit of text that we call the prompt, and it generates an output which is a completion of that text that sounds good. Now, I chose those words very carefully, sounds good. It's stuff that sounds good in terms of it's in the same language, it's a sensible continuation continuation of the text you provided in terms of syntax and grammar and so forth. Um, but it's not necessarily factual. It could actually be creative writing. Um, and sounds good is really defined in terms of the data that was used to create that black box the data that was used to train that model to recognize mm -hmm. patterns in the inputs to generate the outputs. Now, for models like ChatGPT, that input data that it's used to train on is essentially the entire internet. So we've got all of science, all of literature, all of Wikipedia, you know, but also all of the chats and conversations in blogs and everything else that you find on the web is how it mm -hmm. learns to create these outputs that in some sense uh, sound good. So your question, yeah, go ahead, Zemi. Isn't it the same thing that bot does? That that what? I didn't catch that word. The bot, the bot itself. Uh, which bot are you talking about? The creating that a response. Well, yeah, the bot. Well, the bot, the model is creating the response from a prompt to generate an output. Now, what yeah. ChatGPT does is kind of layers on top of that whole process by providing as its input at each step the entire conversation, oh, and that's okay. how ChatGPT acts as a chat. Yeah. Because because of that single input, it has the entire context of the conversation, so it knows previous bits of information that have been in that text in order to generate an output. But that's a really, really good point, because that essentially is a really good example of prompt engineering. Mm -hmm. In order to make a chat bot, chat bot we yeah. engineer the prompt so that invisibly to the user behind the scenes is not just being provided with your latest question. It's also got the entire context of the previous history to generate a more meaningful output. And that is a form of prompt engineering. Um, but there's a lot of other tricks you can do with a prompt. Mm. Um, like for example, if you had a, a, a chatbot, chatbot for say a store, mm. you might inject into that prompt, again, invisibly to the user, information about your products or your prices of your location. So that information is available to the chatbot, even if it wasn't included in its previous training data. Because if you're using yes. one of these foundational models like ChatGPT or GPT-4, it may well not be included in there, especially yeah. if that information was created after the model was first trained. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. So, 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 so it's like completing when I say, when and you mentioned about this completion as well. So it's like if um, if, if I said that I, I'm, going to a, I, I'm going to a park and then it may complete that, for a walk or mm -hmm. to run because it has been trained on the internet and it, it keeps that um, context of like, where should I use? It may not be using that. It may not be completing as like, I'm going to a park and do an experiment because people 
don't usually do an experiment in in the box. That's right. Um, yeah, it's based on the examples that's seen before. It's probably seen yeah. lots of examples of people people writing. I went to the park and went for a walk. I went to the park and yeah. did some exercise. Probably not. Yeah. I went to the park and experimented in a lab. Yeah. But another good point about this is that the response that it gives you, it might be any of those. It's essentially selected randomly, whereas yeah. the chance of the response being produced is proportional in a kind of way to the amount of times it's something like that has been seen in the training data. Got it. Got it. I think that it requires, we definitely need some a different episode for this because yeah. there are so many questions coming up around prop engineering, especially yeah. like what is few short, one short, and all that yeah. learning, and how do we, you know, increase it. But we'll, since we have got a limited time, so we'll definitely uh, get into that in sure. our next one, David, with you. Um, <laughs> another question I've got with me, with me is like, we have witnessed so many organizations and customers who really want to work with large, large language models. And we have seen so many, so many libraries, um, uh, or I would say frameworks coming up such as Langchain and other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then organizations think that they really can deploy their large language, large language models into their own premise or yeah. into their, like hold that workload into their own cloud subscription, I would say. Mm -hmm. Is it really feasible? And first of all, if it is feasible, um, and if it is not, then why not? And if it is, then how can we do that? Yeah. So let, let's talk about these large language models, like the ones from OpenAI. So think about ChatGPT or GPT-3.5, which is the model behind ChatGPT. These models take months to train, and they work off you know, probably petabytes of data and require mm -hmm. you know, often millions of dollars worth of GP2, GPU compute um, yeah. to actually train. And um, and in terms of actually uh, running those models, you need you need a powerful computer to even run those models after they're trained. So this is kind of really in the realm, you know, of the cloud providers. Um, if you if you want to customize those models somehow to make them behave with knowledge or information outside of their initial training data, um, there's really only two options today. Um, one is a process called fine tuning which is essentially a process of, of, of modifying those foundational models um, yeah. with additional training data. But that in itself is a fairly expensive process. And right. then once you've done that, you've got to go through the process of hosting that model, and that has its own mm. costs and downsides and so forth. It seems to be that the way the industry is going and kind of what actually works the best is, going back to your question, Sami, is, is prompt engineering, mm. is you know figuring out ways of providing the necessary contextual information in the prompt to generate the responses that suit your particular uh, use case. I think this is a very, very good point because um, this brings me to another question, David, then like, fine, I get it, that fine tuning. And the other one I think is the rag pattern where we utilize the the mm -hmm. existing existing data and then you, and Using prompt engineering, we we take out our our responses or, yeah. or the desired responses. But another another question comes to me, and and that has come to me like at least for from from real clients that mm -hmm. they want to host something for their own enterprise. Like they don't want to bring that whole bunch of data to to because they are still a couple of 
folks are still thinking that mm-hmm. OpenAI is is equal to Azure OpenAI. Yeah. Hence, you know that public information and all that. But mm-hmm. really, how do enterprises utilize the power of OpenAI with their own data? So that if they search for like, hey, I want an expense sheet from my um, mm-hmm. X department. How? Yeah. What's that? So yeah. Yeah. So. Um... I think, first of all, that's the benefit of using Azure OpenAI service. So you, hmm. you have these big models. It's not really feasible to host them on your own infrastructure for, for lots of different reasons, but they are available within these the Azure tenants. So if you're building an application around these Azure OpenAI services, all of your data is protected within your Azure tenant as it is with any other um, cloud-based uh, application. Um, but you mentioned RAG, the RAG pattern, and that's kind of the, the 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 architecture that people are using these days to provide what I call grounding for these models. Um, so, for example, if you, let's say you had a tech support system um, and you have lots of technical articles or prior interactions with customers based on your specific proprietary products, which are either you know, not available to the public, so couldn't have been included in the training data before, or perhaps new, so they couldn't have been included in the training data because it was produced after the model was 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 frozen. Yeah, the RAG pattern, which stands for Retrieval Augmented Generation, is basically a two-step process. Once somebody asks a question via the prompt through a user interface, you then go through a process of searching through your proprietary data extracting out the pieces that are relevant to that particular prompt, which you can actually use LLMs to do, um, and then inserting that factual information directly into the context or the prompt um, so that when the large language model like GPT-3.5 provides its response, it has that context to provide a factual response to the user that's relevant to the customer's proprietary data without that proprietary data ever leaving the Azure infrastructure. Yeah, it makes sense. I have lots of questions in my brain, but I want to go through the list so we uh, stay on track. Um, As we know nowadays, everywhere we go, everybody's talking about the usage of ChatGPT or other Mm -hmm. tools like Dali, MidJourney. But in terms of like Azure, using Azure services um, within within, within Azure, open AI Mm -hmm. services within Azure, we still see the approval process is pretty tight and maybe takes time. Do you? No, why is that? Is there any other consideration that Azure does? Um, I think I missed a word. Which which process did you mention there? Azure approval process for OpenAI services. Approval process. Okay, yeah. Um, so so for context, the to get access to Azure OpenAI service, number one, you need to have an Azure subscription. Uh, but specifically for Azure OpenAI service, you need to complete a form. Uh, which basically mm-hmm. declares what the use case is uh, for how you're going to apply um, this model in practice. And that's basically um, centered around Microsoft's responsible AI principles. I see. Um, you know, these large language modules in general, this this AI, these new AI systems are, are changing the world pretty rapidly. Yeah. Um, and basically what Microsoft wants to do is make sure that all uses of these large language models adhere to the principles that are listed in Microsoft's responsible AI principles, which are available on the web. But basically say you want to make sure that any applications of this technology is fair, is transparent, and fundamentally doesn't cause harm for individuals or for society. Um, so it's a pretty simple process uh, to go through that application process. It clears pretty quickly. Um, but as long as your application 
is not something that is trying to do something bad in that sense, then um, you're available to use it within the Azure OpenAI service. Can um, can a private or individual start using it, or should it is only available for enterprise? Yeah, individuals can absolutely use it. Um, you can have an individual subscription. Uh, again, go through the same application process. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if you're a hobbyist, you know you can just talk about I want to build this application and test it out. And again, as long as that application uh, adheres to the responsible AI principles, uh, you can do that. In terms of privacy, does it learn from my data because I need to like share the data so it can get trained, et cetera, et cetera? And does it learn from my data and consume any other use cases or it's within the context of my own use? Uh, so there's two questions there, I think. Uh, yeah. The answer to them is both. Um, okay. First of all, just a reminder to the, to the, uh, uh, the answer is no for both is what I meant to say there. But so as a reminder for the users, uh, the people that are listening to this podcast, um, these responsible AI models are black boxes. Sorry, mm -hmm. these are large language models, uh, black boxes. Uh, once they're trained on their training data, they're frozen, and they'll never learn again. Um, now, I think the concern that you're, you're learning, alluding to there is new generations of these models come out over time. Um, they are based on new data and new examples uh, that are used to train those models. Uh, Microsoft does not use uh, any of the prompts or outputs uh, that people use or generate with Azure OpenAI service in the training of any models. Uh, it's uh, it's completely secure within the the uh, the, um, uh, the user's tenant. Yeah. The only, uh, the only exception to that, and again, this goes back to responsible AI principles, is that mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft does by default ensure uh, that uh, any of the prompts or outputs um, are, again, adhering to responsible AI principles so that nobody is attempting to use prompts to try and cause the AI system to do bad things or to generate bad outputs. Uh, Microsoft provides that as a service to our enterprise customers, you know, to make sure that all the uses are complying with, you know, their own principles. Um, but if there is a need to um, not have the inputs and outputs go through that service, uh, enterprises can opt out of that process. Oh okay. Oh okay. Yeah. This is this is really nice because I I didn't know about it in the way that Microsoft does allow you to opt it out from from that uh, from that process as well. So super cool because this has this has been a discussion um, within the industry that hey don't provide any sensitive data to to these services otherwise they are going to tell that that secret information of your organization to another one. Yeah. Um, and but that is, this, that is one of the primary use cases of using it within Azure OpenAI services that all of you do. Yeah, it makes sense. Absolutely. And it is very important. It is important for, for enterprises, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so coming to the, since we are talking about so many um, use cases, sorry, organizations um, mm -hmm. and enterprises. So um, do you have some, some interesting use cases and which you have seen, David, which Microsoft has implemented. Of course, um, we don't want to yeah. name them or something, but if you can just talk about them. Yeah, I actually can give a public one. This is this one is actually oh, available yeah. on the um, Microsoft website customer section. And, I, and this example is really interesting because a lot of the conversation around these large language models is in the context of chatbots, you know, interacting, answering questions, getting responses yeah. to it. But, um, my background is in data science. So an application that I actually find really interesting of these large language models is data extraction from large unstructured databases. And again, going back to Sami, to your question about prompt engineering, yeah. um, you can do things like, you know, if you have, let's say, a lot of 
this wouldn't be the architecture. Let's say you had a lot of text files that were previous customer service transcripts from interactions. You could write a prompt that says something like extract from this file the customer name, the problem that they described, and the resolution that the, the, the tech support agent gave them. So just three very discrete pieces of information. And the prompts will do that really well. You, you will extract out information from a piece of text given essentially plain English instructions. Uh, you can even give the prompt instructions to provide the output in a structured sense, like, like put the output in a JSON array, which I could then use to import into a, into a database system or something like that. But being able to then apply a data extraction prompt like that over a very large database is a really interesting and powerful way of extracting structured data out of these masses of unstructured textual data that we have already. So the CarMax example, CarMax is the company, and this is a company based in the United States that allows people to purchase used cars. Um, apparently, one of the primary pieces of information that people that are buying used cars look to is reviews from uh, prior owners of those cars. And one of the things that CarMax does to help make the listings for their used cars uh, more uh, attractive, I suppose, is they had humans that would review all of the different reviews and then write kind of a, a summary of what people had been saying about these used cars. Well, now they can automate that process. They can write a prompt, which will be applied to all the previous reviews that have been applied to a particular make and model of a car, and then use that to generate a description of here's what people have said about this car, um, and then put that into their uh, landing pages for each make and model of car. And apparently, according to CarMax, the uh, large language model generated summaries generate more sales than the ones that wow. were previously generated by the human adapters um, of this sort of unstructured data. This is interesting. Uh, yeah. Really, really interesting because uh, you are you are, you are absolutely right, David. I've, I've also seen a couple of use cases around the chatbot or conversational experiences, yeah. um, but not extracting the unstructured data, bringing up to a different yeah. interface. So really good to see these these use cases coming up. And that's, of course, going to exploit the, the mm -hmm. I think, the power of yeah. OpenAI or large language models. Yeah. And I think the, the really interesting thing about these applications is that they're offline applications. So not only do mm -hmm. you get to make use of all this unstructured data that you've, you have around and haven't been able to get information out of, you don't have to worry about things like people entering the wrong prompts or prompt injection yeah, or anything like that right. because you have complete control of that process because it's happening offline. Cool. That's very interesting. Um, so if, if anyone wants to get into the maybe the land of OpenAI or learn about Azure OpenAI services, what background that person needs to know? Do they need to be an ML engineers or data scientists or anyone can start? Their journey. Well, that's kind of the beauty of it. Like, if you want to get into interacting with these large language models and um, and uh, get a start in prompt engineering, and that's the best mm -hmm. way to get experience in prompt engineering is just to try it out. There's still there's not a lot of set standard practices yet. We're still experimenting and learning about what works and what doesn't. But all you need is the ability to communicate in language, 
doesn't even have to be in English. You know, these mm. large language models support many languages. Um, so being able to have a fluency with language and being able to experiment, you know, trying different variants of prompts and seeing what works or what works sometimes but not consistently and what doesn't work, you know, just that experimentational nature um, really helps there. And um, within the Azure OpenAI service, there's a nice playground interface. You know, it is a user interface. It's not designed for end users. It's designed for yeah. people that are developing these systems. You can type and try different prompts and try different system messages, and it's got all sorts of tools to help you with that experimentation. Now, if you want to integrate these models into applications, at that point, you do need to be a programmer of some kind, but it's a pretty simple API. It's for those of you that have used the open AI API. It's essentially the same API. <laughs> um, slight differences in way authentication is done, but beyond that, if you've used the OpenAI API, you'll be very comfortable with the Azure OpenAI API. These are very hard words to say. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. The name is pretty catchy, so <laughs> I'm really starting here about shifting career. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think so. It's developer. If if you are a developer, then definitely. And if you are not, I think then just to add. To this that um, our friends and Bob platform have done a great job of incorporating AI builder with those Azure Open AI uh -huh. services as well. So if they are no code expert, if somebody is no code maker, then then can they can also utilize the power of yeah. Azure Open AI. Really, services. really good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, this brings me to the last question, David, and this is um, I've kept it to the last because we wanted to have a discussion about it. But yeah, uh, definitely as it as I said in the start as well that. A prompt engineering topic requires a different, definitely a different episode. But we have seen that people have started generating content, and that content is neither true or it it never existed. I've mm -hmm. I've never seen a a person uh, on a beach and also wearing a an astronaut uh, uniform or you know yeah. things like that or spacesuit. So um, and similarly, when I've seen a couple of um, I've I've asked myself as well that a travel destination with a with a lava and a snow together in Western Australia and it was like giving up all those results to me. Um, it tried first that there 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 is no place that exists and I said no there is and then it started spitting out all that information because uh -huh. I think um, it really wanted to give out something. So yeah. what is this and how do we get rid of the this the scenarios or the situations like this. Yeah. So, so, so two points, first of all, um, you know, you, you, there's lots of different uses for these large language models or these image generation models, uh, like Dali, you know, you might want to do something practical or factual or, you know, generate, you know, information that is true. On the other hand, you might want to have it do creative writing or generate something novel or write a brand new poem or anything like that. So something that's more on the creative side of things. Now, the point is there is no switch in these models between factual responses and creative writing. As I said at the very beginning of our conversation, all these models do is generate output that sounds good or looks good in the case of the image models. Mm -hmm. And that is defined based on something that looks representative from its training data. But to your point, you gave a really interesting example there. The, 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 a lot of the failures that people talk about with these models, about them giving wrong information or hallucinating. I really don't like that term because it suggests that these models have agency, but at the end of the day, it's just a completions generation engine. There's nothing magical about it. 
but it does generate stuff that sounds good. Now, if the model is ungrounded, and in the sense that it means it doesn't have any examples or information to draw from, either from its training data or from the prompt engineering process that has injected information ahead of that prompt. Sounds good in that case just means a sequence of words that kind of meets the syntactic requirements of English or the particular context that you've given it, like give me a story or a poem or whatever. But it would just essentially generate random words that fit that structure after that point. You know, it's not trying to lie. It's not hallucinating. It's just generating a sequence of words that fit a pattern. Mm -hmm. Now, your example is really good in that, you know, you asked it about a place in Western Australia that has snow. And factually, there is not. And it sounds like it gave you the right answer, first of all. Factually, there is no place like that. But then you said, yes, there is. Now, what you inadvertently or inadvertently, I'm not quite sure, but what you did by doing that is you grounded the model with information. Yes, there is a place in Western Australia that has snow. And then it used that grounding to actually generate its next response, which is, as you saw, it makes made sense. things up. But you essentially told it to do that. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. No, no, this is this this is a very, very clear explanation yeah. that yeah. we we are we are also responsible of like what are we getting out of it if we are mm -hmm. trying to <clears throat> put something which is wrong in grounding it. Yeah. I think then we should also expect that. Yeah. But this is this is a very dangerous discussion and and discussion as in like this is a very responsible mm -hmm. uh, effort for from and it should be from all the organizations uh, and and individuals. I think we are in time. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Sony, Can I ask more. one last question on that uh, example? Yeah. Um, David, you mentioned that uh, it goes and maybe review the conversation that we have. So the example that, for example, Arafat mentioned, if I, does it learn from what I say, even if it's not grounding? So if I, if it produces an information and it's wrong, and if I say, okay, the broad information yeah. is this one or something like that, does it go back to the conversation history and correct itself for the next yeah. image? Uh, in a, in a very specific sense. So for applications, yeah. for consumer applications like ChatGPT or Bing Chat, yeah. then yes, uh, when it creates its next response or its next completion, it does have the context of the prior chat, but that's really just a trick that's happening behind the scenes is that oh. the user interface is basically providing that information to it without telling you. Um, you can see the impact of that is if you go back to chat GPT the next day, or if you click the start a new conversation, brew in Bing, it wipes out that, that prior history. And now if you ask it about that previous chat, it won't know anything about it. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, that was my follow-up question. Okay, got it now. Okay, so it only keeps that session, the information yes, that we exactly. have. Yeah. Thank you. Makes sense. Fine, then. I think, as I said, that we are on time. So thank you so much, David, for your time. And I am definitely sure that a lot of our listeners will get some new insights, which they may not know by now, because I learned a lot from this conversation as well. And I hope the same for Somi as well. So as, as I said, it requires a separate discussion on prompt engineering, and we'll definitely have you, David, sometime later uh, for that, and we'll deep dive into that. Yeah, I'd be pleased to come back sometime for that, and it's been a lot of fun today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. So we'll see you in our next episode, and thank you for tuning in. Thanks, David.